Go. Here we go. My friends, Recording in progress. ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. It is amazing to see you all here. We have in person Ray and Ray's granddaughter, Chaisara. Welcome. It is great to have you here. We have on our online crew, Joy and Donna, Dina, actually, and Sarah. It's great to have you all. All right, I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump in. We have so much to talk about. What a powerful topic. Actually, before we got started, so we were schmoozing here uh, locally um, around the offices and we were talking about tragedy and why bad things happen to good people. And as uh, Divine Providence would have it, today's reading, today's Torah, the, the Aliyah for today, the third reading of Shmini talks about tragedy, tragedy that befalls individuals that, we, that our tradition tells us were righteous. As we will see, it's a very complicated story, very tragic story, and it begins. Can I just ask one quick follow-up? Yeah, for sure. It's it very easy. So you mentioned that today in Israel, at the Wailing Wall, people go for daily priestly blessings. Yes. So who gives those? Who gives those? The books? Kohanim, the priests. The Kohanim. Right? They do Berkat Kohanim. Yeah, priestly blessing. Here we only do it on, on major holidays, like Rosh Hashanah. Um, well, they do it every Monday and Thursday, no? They, it's every day they have oh, uh, I don't know. I don't, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> they either do it every day or every Monday and Thursday. Maybe it depends on the tradition. I think Sfaradim do it every day. Yeah. yeah so I where think do so. we do it here? You know, Shol, you'll cut Passover. Come Passover. Well, I've come to the service. I am coming Passover. I'm, Good. But it's done. You do it. I don't do it. No, no, you need a Kohen. Oh, that's probably why we don't do it. We don't always have a Kohen. Right. I don't think I've ever, right. We're Kohenless in Connecticut. Remember Sleepers in Seattle? This is the Kohenless in Connecticut, but we're not in Connecticut. So you're having one on Passover. We would. We would do it every, uh, the, the, the holiday mornings of Passover if there's a Kohen. Oh, so you don't know if there'll be one on Passover. It depends. We've got to get a Kohen. We gotta get. So there's no special outfit like we've been reading. Just no, 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 no. Yeah. That's only in the temple. No, just the talis and and that's it with the hands. Like I said yesterday, and the blessing. So any yeah. kohen can do Correct. it. Correct. Any kohen, but we don't always have a kohen. That's the challenge. Right. Our show. Sometimes we don't have a We're usually good with that. We're usually good with that. But a kohen is is a different story. All right, let's jump into today's. Yeah, sure, no problem. So today's reading, oh, which actually is a good segue. So why did we? Why is Donna asking about the blessing of the Kohen? Because we learned yesterday that after the Mishkan was put up, remember there were seven days of miluyim, seven days of initiation, seven days to get this right. And for those seven days, every day Moshe put up the Mishkan in the morning, and he took it apart at night. Imagine that. My kids make Lego, you know, they make or a puzzle. They work on it for hours, and then they don't want to take it apart. I mean, who does that, right? But every day he put up the Mishkan in the morning and took it apart at night. And every day he brought uh, the sacrifices, and he inaugurated, initiated the Kohanim, his brother Aaron and his four, Aaron's four sons, into the priesthood. And finally, it was day number eight, or day number one of the grand opening, the first day of Nisan in the year 2449 from creation, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, and that was opening day. They built the Mishkan, Moshe built, built the Mishkan, they put it together, and Aaron, this time Aaron, and his, they brought the, the, the priest, the Kohanim, they brought the sacrifices, and they did the blood, they sprinkling the blood, and they put the stuff in the Mizbeach on the altar to burn various parts of the animals. There were three, there were four different types of sacrifices we had yesterday. There was a sin offering, there was a burnt offering, 
there was a peace offering, there was a meal offering. In Hebrew, we have a carbon chatas, we had a carbon ola, we had a carbon shlomim, we had a carbon mincha. We had all of these different offerings. And finally, and, and, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. And finally, finally, they dive into Hashem, they pray to God, and the Divine Presence came down in the form of a fire. The fire came and consumed the offerings. And thus, they felt that Hashem had, God had acquiesced and acknowledged their efforts. And that's how yesterday's reading concluded. So, and, and again, I, I know I said this yesterday, but it's very important to understand the historical arc. You have, in Jewish history, in the recent history of this past you know, year or two of, 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 of time, you have massive ups and downs. You had the massive up of the Exodus. And then you had the drama at the sea, but then there was the splitting of the sea, and that's up. And then you had um, Har Sinai, Sinai experience, the, the revelation at Sinai. And then you had the major down of the Chet Ego, the golden calf. And then you had the, re, the, the building, rebuilding or building, I don't, not rebuilding, rebuilding the, a people that were shattered, rebuilding tablets that were shattered. And, and that comes in the form of building a Mishkan. And it's a national project. Everyone donates, everyone contributes, everyone builds. If you're skilled at weaving, you're weaving. If you're skilled at, at, at hammering, you're hammering. Everyone pitches in. And finally they built it. And seven days of inauguration, and the eighth day, and now the Shekhinah comes down and it works. Hashem is in the building, right? Hashem is in the house, as the kids like to say. Now what? Tragedy. Third reading of Shemini. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 12. And Moses spoke, Moses spoke to Aaron... Oh, wait, wait, hold on, I'm sorry. I'm on the wrong, uh, I was on the wrong tab on my computer because I printed three and four. Okay, three, here we go. Leviticus chapter nine, verse 24. And fire went forth from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fats upon the altar. This is where we see the fire from heaven. I just mentioned the fire from above. It's Hashem. The fire went, from, went forth from Hashem. That means it came from heaven down. We already had this last week or two weeks ago, that even though in the Mishkan, in the, in the base of Middash, even though a fire descended from above, they still, they had to bring their own fire. They had to bring wood and create a fire from below. But until now, the first seven days, the seven days of inauguration, it was only the fire from below. On, eight, on the eighth day, eight signifying infinity, this idea of an infinite God in a finite space, suddenly now, Hashem, Hashem's fire appears. So the fire goes forth from, from before the Lord, from before Hashem, and consumed the burnt offering and the fats upon the altar. And, middle of verse 24, all the people saw. All the people saw. Similar to the to phraseology that was used by Harsina, by Mount Sinai, the people saw. They saw, they sang praises, and they fell upon their faces. So this was an incredible moment. If we talk about a peak, an emotional peak, I don't know that you could have a greater emotional peak than this moment right here. Now, why do I say that? Although Har Sinai, the Exodus Har Sinai was great, but there's an even greater high that comes after a low, right? After you've lost everything, to then get it back. But well, why was is, a good thing? Why was what a good thing? That the fire came down? Well, we haven't talked about the fire that took the lives yet. This is still just taking the carbonate, the sacrifices. So at this point, it means that Hashem blessed the efforts. Hashem was, was there. Hashem was in the building, right? They created a fire, on the, and then a fire comes down from heaven. Oh, that's magic. That's Hashem 
It's a miracle. Hashem is here. Hashem likes what we did. That was the ultimate validation that they were forgiven for the chetek, for the golden calf. That is the greatest high after the low. You know, again, the, the, it's like the comeback story. It, somebody who succeeds, it's one thing. But for someone, someone who fails and then succeeds, is able to pick themselves back up and then succeed, that's an even a bigger story. That's even more emotion. Or let's put it this way. Sometimes, I mean, God forbid, God forbid, right? You have cases where children have been ripped away from parents or gone missing, whatever, God forbid, right? And then years later, they're reunited. The joy of the reunion is much greater, much more intense then it's hard to rank joy, but like it's had had they had the kids not gone anywhere, right? So yeah, there's a steady love, but the intensity of that celebration is even more given the separation and the absence that preceded that reunion. So in this part of the parsha, um, Am Yisrael wanted forgiveness from Hashem. After Everything, the- yeah. In fact, Aaron was afraid to to approach the Mizbeach because the altar, because he was still thinking about the golden calf, and the people were panicking when the fire didn't come down for seven days. They thought Hashem is still angry at them for the sin, for the sin of the golden calf. It was this moment. At this moment in time, they put everything on the Mizbeach. They had their own fire, but then Hashem. When that fire came down from heaven, that's when they knew. Everything is good. And, and the, the, the crazy emotional roller coaster is, in a few verses, it's going to go all the way down again. That's the drama of today's reading. Well, I, I don't understand. Aaron participated greatly in making the gold to, to care. And um, the other people got swallowed up. Right. And nothing happened. You either. don't want to let Aaron off the hook so easily. Right. Right. Well, okay. I hear you. Do you? I, do I? I'm not in charge. <laughs> I'm not in charge. I don't make the rules. But I understand your question. The question is, did Aaron get off easy yeah. for his role in participation in the little calf? Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So the argument could be made, yes. But at the other, on the other hand, according to the, according to the tradition, he was trying to delay them until Moshe got down the mountain. He knew they were off by day. He knew they were miscalculating. He knew that they were a mob. He knew that if he would tell them no, they would just kill him. So he says, all right, take jewelry from your, from your wives and your children. He knew that that wasn't going to happen. Well, they came up with their own gold or they just pulled it off, whatever they did. And then he says, okay, we'll do it tomorrow. They woke up really early the next day. So he was trying to delay them. Although he did play a role, he was trying to not play a role. He just kind of got caught up into it. That's the understanding, at least that's classically said. All right, but let's get back inside. Let's see where this, where this reading goes. So that's the end of Leviticus chapter 9. They brought the offerings, the fire came down from heaven, and they sang praises, and everything was fine and amazing. Leviticus chapter 10, verse number 1. And Aaron's sons, the two oldest sons, Nadav and Avihu, each took his pan, so fire, put fire in them and placed incense upon it. So again, they took a pan, they put fire, hot coals in them, and placed incense upon it. And they brought before the Lord, that, that indicates that they went into either the Mishkan or even into the Kodesh Kodashim, even into the Holy of Holies, but they definitely went into an inner space. They brought before the Lord foreign fire. Foreign fire means alien fire. 
which means nothing green and, and right, but it means fire that should not have been brought, which he, God, had not commanded them. The same words, the same phrase, as in that first verse of today's reading, fire went forth from before the Lord, you have the same four Hebrew words, the same five Hebrew words. The fire went forth from before Hashem, before the Lord, and consumed. This time, not the burnt offerings, but consumed them, Nadav and Aviyu. And they died before the Lord. Aaron has four sons, Nadav, Aviyu, Elazar, and Itamar, the, the oldest two sons of Aaron, they are tragically, they, are tragically, they tragically lose their lives on this day. Right after the high, right after the euphoria of Hashem's presence coming into the Mishkan and blessing their efforts and consuming the sacrifices and everything being good and being received and the golden calf being forgiven, the next moment Aaron's two sons pass away and Aaron now is in deep mourning. Let's continue. We're going to go back and do some Rashi's here as well, but let's continue to get the narrative. Then Moses said to Aaron, right, one brother, the younger brother to the older brother, this is what the Lord spoke when he said, I will be sanctified through those near to me, and before all the people I will be glorified. Basically, Moses says, Moses said that when Hashem told me, when Hashem said, that he will be I will be sanctified through those near to me. It almost means that there's going to be a sacrifice of those that God loves. In other words, God is going to take those that are really close to him. And so Moses says, your sons were the closest. This was his way of comforting his brother. This is, well, sort of. This was his way of also comforting his brother and saying kind of what people say, you know, God takes the best. You know, ever hear that expression? That Hashem takes the, the best? That's what Moses, Moshe tells his brother. Moses tells Aaron, God, Hashem took the best. Hashem is going to be sanctified and glorified through, through the, those closest to him, and those were your two sons, not even of you. Vayidom Aaron, and Aaron was silent. Moses comes up with a rationale, Moses comes up with a reason, and Aaron is silent. There are so many lessons from this entire narrative. I'm going to go back, but I just want to get the, get, get the story here. Verse number four. Pasuk Dalet. And Moses summoned Mishael and El Safan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said, to, so these were basically cousins. Moses said to the cousins, draw near, carry your kinsmen from within the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. Basically, someone had to go in and take out their lifeless bodies, right? They passed away inside the Mishkan. So inside the, the covered space, building. So he said to the cousins, go in and pull out your brothers, pull out your cousins, take them outside the camp. So they approached, verse 5, they approached and carried them with their tunics to outside the camp as Moses had spoken. Number 6, and Moses said to Aaron and to Elazar and to Itamar, basically the remaining family. Aaron is the father, Elazar and Itamar are the remaining sons. Do not leave your heads unshorn and do not rend your garments. In other words, do not do, not do the traditional uh, tr uh, customs of mourners. Okay, Leaving your heads unshorn means letting your hair grow long. It's the custom of someone in Avelut, in mourning, not to cut their hair and to tear their garments. There's, amongst other things, there's two... 
um, things that are done, we don't cut hair or shave, right? We don't, we don't cut the hair, number one, in mourning. And number two, we rend the garments. We, 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 we tear Korea. We rip the, rip the clothes. So Moses tells his brother and his nephews, the ones that are directly mourning, because Aaron lost his sons and they lost their brother, their brothers. So Moses tells them, do not do avelos here. Do not, do not, uh, do not assume the customs of mourners. Why? Because this is a very unique scenario. It's very unique circumstances. It's a day of inaugurating the Mishkan. It's a day of community celebration. It's a day of you know, direct communication and, and, and instruction from God. You cannot just adopt the custom of mourning and kind of you know, retreat from, from society as is the mitzvah to do when somebody loses a loved one. In this case, don't do that. So he says, don't leave your heads unshorn. Do not rend your garments so that you shall not die, which implies that if they did those things, they would lose their lives. And lest God, he, God, be angry with the entire community. But your brothers, listen to this, but your brothers, the entire house of Israel, they shall bewail the conflagration, the fire that the Lord has burned. In other words, you will not mourn like the brothers will mourn, but the Am Yisrael, the people will mourn. The people are going to mourn. In other words, the family should not mourn in this case because the family are the priests that need to continue. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying this flippantly, but the show must go on, right? To adopt a, a phrase from, from Broadway, the show must go on. The, the, there's still a lot of stuff that has to happen on this day. And Moshe tells his brother and his nephews, you got to continue the service. The service is not stopping right now. What about who's going who's gonna, to um, mourn? Who's gonna, uh, the, whole, the whole nation is going to mourn. But you have to keep on going. It's normal. It's like Cholomoyed when you don't mourn. Right. So, right. So, right. As Chayos started saying, there are times when, when even today, when God forbid a loved one passes away, Jewish law says, for example, on Cholomoyed, on a holiday, so you don't begin Shiva. You don't begin the mourning until after the holiday concludes. If someone passes away on the holiday, you only begin the mourning period at the end of the holiday. So, right, so, so that would be, I think, akin to, to what, yeah, that's a good, that's a good comparison. Um, let's continue. Moses gives more instructions to his, fa- to his brother and his, his brother's sons. And do not, verse 7, and do not go out of the, ten- of the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay? In other words, don't leave the Mishkan. Don't leave the Mishkan building. Lest you die because the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. And they did according to Moses' order. They followed the order. Okay, let's stop here for a moment. Let's stop here, and we're going to go back. We're going to go back to some Rashis. Um, you guys don't have the Rashis, but I'll, I'm going to pull them up here online. We just click a button. Unfortunately, the paper doesn't work the same way. Um, okay, let's look at Rashi. When fire went out, verse 2, fire went out and consumed Nadav and Avihu, the two oldest sons of Aaron, Rashi explains. Rashi quotes Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer says, Aaron's sons, Aaron's sons died only because they rendered halachic decisions in the presence of Moses. So what Rashi does right away is he cites from the Medrash and from the Talmud, he cites opinions, different opinions amongst the sages as to why Aaron's sons passed away. We don't really have clarity in the Torah itself. The Torah itself doesn't really give us a lot to work with. It just says 
that they brought a foreign fire, which God had not commanded them to bring. So was it that? So Rashi says, we have multiple opinions. Rabbi Eliezer says, they, they died, they lost their lives because they rendered a halachic decision in the presence of Moses. Apparently there was a question that, uh, that came up and they offered their opinion. Instead of letting Moses give the opinion, they offered their opinion. Is that liable for death, death penalty? If you, if you, if you offer opinion before Moses, I don't know, but that's what Rabbi Eliezer says. Next, Rabbi Shmuel says, they died because they had entered the sanctuary after having drunk wine. So Rabbi Shmuel says, no, they, they, die, they lost their lives because they entered the Mishkan, they entered the building while intoxicated. One is not allowed to serve in the Mishkan, in the sanctuary, in a state of intoxication. They drank and they served, and that is a problem. By the way, the, um, the halacha is, even till this day, Jewish law is that a Kohen should not get drunk. Kohen shouldn't drink. Why? Because at any moment, Mashiach could come, right? And if Mashiach comes, we'll need the Kohanim. And you got to serve. And you can't serve if you're drunk. So, sorry, Kohanim, <laughs> but no intoxication for you. The Rebbe once said, that in halacha, it says that a person can kind of get out of being intoxicated in you know, certain strategies, you can get out of it within, within a few minutes. That means the Mashiach could come so quickly that a person might not even have those 12 or 18 minutes, I forget which one it is already, those few minutes to get a little sobered up, which means that we believe the Mashiach could come like a blink of an eye, like right now. So, so, so should it be. Anyway, but back to our story. So we have two opinions. One says they rendered a halakha decision um, you know, in front of Moses. They didn't let him give the, 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 the opinion. And that was liable for that. Hashem said for them that was, that, was, uh, that was not okay. Or they entered intoxicated. That's the second opinion in Rashi. Let's continue. The proof for this, the proof for Rabbi Shmuel's opinion, is that after their death, actually, right at the verse that we stopped before, Scripture admonishes the survivors that they may not enter the sanctuary after having drunk wine, which is literally the, the next verse that we stopped by, where God tells Aaron and his sons, uh, don't serve in the Mishkan while intoxicated. And so uh, the implication, why would you tell us right now not to serve intoxicated, must be that, that that was the problem that his sons did, that they were intoxicated, and so now he's warning them, don't, don't, make sure it doesn't happen again. This is analogous, Rashi, to a king who had a faithful servant. Um, yeah, let's, I'm going to read the mushal, the example. When he found him standing at, at tavern entrances, he severed his head in silence and appointed another attendant in his place. Wow, that's very severe. Right, the guy's hitting up a bar. He's like, nope, off with your head. We would not know why you put the first to death, but for his enjoining the second, thus, you must not enter the doorway of taverns. In other words, he tells us the, the new attendant, the new, the new attendant, he says, don't go to a bar. So that means, from which we know, that for such reason, he had put the first one to death. So that, when you tell the second one, don't do this, that implies that that's why the first one got uh, eliminated, so to speak. Thus it is said, and fire went forth before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. But we would not know why they died, but first commanding Aaron, do not drink wine, that will lead to intoxication. We know from this that they died precisely on account of the wine. 
For this reason, Scripture showed love to Aaron by directing the divine utterance to him alone, thus do not drink wine that will lead to intoxication, as recounted in Vayikarabah, etc. So that's why Hashem gives that commandment straight to Aaron, uh, directly and not through Moses. Okay, so, so far we have two opinions as to why the sons of Aaron died. You will find many more opinions amongst the commentaries as to what they did wrong to, so to speak, I don't know, I don't like using the word deserve, but for why they ended up being, why their lives ended up being taken by God. Yeah, Troy, jump in. Okay, so the, so the daily wisdom, Yeah. their wisdom is that they were so swept up in the ecstasy yes. of serving God in the moment, and, and that, that from that perspective, it was not a punishment, but a fulfillment. Yes. And then it says that we should not, that, that we should learn that we don't do that. We don't commit suicide to be with God. We have to be on earth and be conscious of what we're doing. Yes. And bring God to us and not go to him. Yes. Excellent. 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 So, so that is based on Hasidic wisdom is that what happened wasn't the punishment but I like the way you said it. It was a fulfillment of their desire. On this occasion, the moment when the divine fire is coming down to consume the sacrifices, all they wanted, they were spiritually sensitive creatures, individuals, and all they wanted was to be one with Hashem. And their neshamas, their souls, neshamot, their souls, were so excited about Hashem that literally it's jumped out of their bodies like a short circuit, right? Like a short circuit where, where, where it's... The, the, see, typically, you know, life is an ashama and a guf, a soul and a body, which makes no sense because a soul is spiritual and a body is physical. So how do you have... Talk about, you know, remember that book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, right? Yeah, 13 years. We have a 13-year anniversary, so mazel tov on that. But the reality is that you have different, uh, different personalities, different natures. And a soul and a body are even further distant than uh, Martian and uh, Venusian or Venusian, whatever there's it's... No book for that. Uh, there's, and there's no book for that, right? It's called life. So how is a person alive with a soul and a body? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Somehow the soul and the body... But when the, when, if the soul gets super excited, right? Like overwhelmed with spiritual excitement, it could actually leap out of the body. We call that klota nefesh, klota nefesh where the soul is so ecstatic, there's such a spiritual ecstasy that it actually leaps out of the body. And it's possible it's happened. It's possible for that to happen. Or the typical, sorry? Has it happened? It has happened, yeah. It happened here, according to Chassidus. It happened here in this case. The other way, the typical way that it happens, separation happens, is when the body becomes too weak to hold the soul. When the body becomes too weak, then the soul and body separate. Right? In other words, like the soul, for the soul to be down here, it's against its nature. It's literally being pulled like a vacuum. It's, it's, it has to have like a suction almost pulling it. If that suction becomes too weak, then the soul goes on its way. That's what essentially death is. You know, when the body becomes too weak, or God forbid something traumatic happens to the body, it can no longer hold on to the soul. It physically can't. That's when the soul departs. And each goes its own way. But it's possible even with a healthy body that the soul would feel so much excitement that it would jump out of the body. And that's what essentially is happening here with Nadav and Aviyu, according to, according to Hasidic philosophy. And that explains all the opinions. 
That explains all the opinions. What does it mean that they got drunk, intoxicated? Not physically intoxicated. They got, you know, intoxication means you're getting high, right? You get, you get, you get like, you get high. You're getting high on what? On wine? On alcohol? No, high on God, right? Try it. It's the ultimate, okay. right? But they got high on God. They got high on spirituality. That's also a high. And their souls were no longer able to, to, to remain. But the, the, the payoff is that that was not ideal. That was considered a mistake. It's a mistake to get so excited to the point that, it, that, that you can't bring it back and translate it into, 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 into physical life. That was a mistake because God created us to, as long as we're here, God created us to be here, not to escape, right? Not to run away. So in life, we're not meant to run away. We're meant to deal with stuff. On a holiday, for example, when we get inspired, we're not meant to just be inspired and have that inspiration float away. We're meant to then ground it, right? The next day, Yom Kippur, oh, we feel like angels. And what happens the morning after? Back to normal, <laughs> right? Is it like that experience just, just, just flew away? That would be a waste. That would be like a soul that just evaporates. The energy just evaporated. The whole point is to bring that back down into a body, bring that back, back down into a grounding into real life. It takes so it's, a good stop, a good energy. Right. To keep it to the, like, the hard days. Like right. That. To take the, 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 the very, very excited energy, the good energy, and bring it down into the daily grind, into the difficulties of day-to-day -day life or, or the difficult days. That's the ultimate, the ultimate fusion. And that's where they fell short, if we could say such a thing. You know, who, who are we to judge? But that's where perhaps they did not actualize the inspiration. Instead of instead of being inspired and then disappearing, the idea would be to be inspired and then make a difference, right? To disappear, it's not, not the tachlis, it's not, it's, not, it's not the ultimate. The ultimate is, the purpose is to be inspired and then to bring it back into real life. Okay, so that is about another of view. Let's jump back in because I think, and Joy, thank you for sharing that because it really is a, a powerful take on that. Um, I will say that the rabbit takes five or six different opinions amongst the classic uh, sages as to why, how, why and how they died. Not how, how we know, but why they died. And he explains all of them according to what we've, we've been saying. How each one is about, you know, the deeper understanding of each of these reasons is because of the same thing, the spiritual high that, that got too, that got out of control, so to speak. Um, Okay, let's do this. Moses tries to comfort his brother by saying, this is what the Lord spoke. So Rashi asks, when did he speak? It was when he said, and I will meet with the children of Israel and it will, and, and it will be sanctified through my glory. Glory. V'niktash b'chvoti. It will be sanctified with my glory. Do not read through my glory. Sorry, through my glory. Do not read through my glory, but b'mechubadai. Through my honorable ones. Not my glory, but my honorable ones. Moses said to Aaron, here's the bottom line, Moses said to Aaron, one brother to the other, Aaron, my brother, I know that this house was to be sanctified through the beloved ones of the omnipresent, but I thought it would be either through me or through you. I thought God was going to take one of us. Now I see that they, not of you, your sons were greater than I or you. He was saying, I thought God was going to take one of us, me or you, but who did he take? Your sons. This was his way of comforting his brother. This was his way of kind of also framing it, making him, you know, God took, right? There were sacrifices being brought. For whatever reason, God also took, God took uh, the, the most beloved. He thought this would somehow comfort his brother to, to, to frame it. Doesn't bring them back, but it kind of contextualizes it, frames it. 
And Aaron was silent. And Aaron was silent. Rashi has his take, but let me share with you um, my take, not my take, the, another take on this. Aaron was silent, meaning we see this in life. We see this in life where people, well-meaning people at Shiva, you know, following the loss, a person has a loss, and then people say all sorts of things, like they're in a better place. Or God takes only the good ones. Or um, you know, people ask other things, like, you know, how did they go, and how did they pass, and how, you know, what was it like? It, People ask, you know, sometimes, people sometimes say things to try to make it, um, make the other one feel better, make the one who experienced loss feel better, and or questions that are more voyeuristic in nature than really anything else. And what we see here is that Vayidom Aaron, Aaron himself is silent. Because ultimately, no words of comfort really you know, anything that can be said is, is, is more intellectual or philosophical as opposed to addressing the loss, which is a whole, an emotional and, and physical whole. So this is a good reminder, you know, in, practically when, when, when comforting someone or when speaking with someone who's, who's experienced a loss, it's really not our role. We shouldn't really, we shouldn't, we should not feel a, a, a role to make them feel better, right? It's not, it's not, we can't make someone feel better. How are you going to bring back the, feel better would be to bring back the loved one. You, we can't do that, right? And no, no type of spin or contextualizing it, it actually makes it better. It's about being there with the other person. Aaron is silent. Aaron is not saying, thank you, that made me feel better. Or he, he's silent because there's nothing to say. There's really nothing to say. Which is why even when we go to Shiva, go to a Shiva house and, 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 and comfort a mourner, we don't, we don't offer comfort. We say, May Hashem give you comfort. We don't offer. How can we comfort someone else? We don't come up with our own words. I mean, we're there. We listen. The laws of, of being in a Shiva house is that we follow the lead of the mourners. Whatever they want to talk about, we talk about with them. We follow the lead. We don't, we don't guide them to, to, to spin it and to say, this is actually a good thing or it's actually like, you know, we, we've done that in classes. We've had Journey of the Soul. We've had, soul, we've had classes talking about life, death, and the afterlife. And in those classes, we explain the journey and, 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 and what goes on here and what goes on there. All that stuff based on Kabbalah, Chassidut, all that stuff. We, we've explained, we, we've done all that stuff. But in a Shiva house, when someone has experienced loss, it's not the right time to get philosophical. Unless they want to get philosophical. Unless the, the mourners, want, the one who lost, wants to ask, has questions. Then, then you answer the question. Then you address that. But to, to, to offer something and, you know, unprovoked and say, you know what? Actually, let me tell you why this is not a bad thing. Let me tell you why, you know, it's actually an honorable thing that happened. Because God actually took the best ones. It could have been me or you, but he took them. That's a real honor. Vayidom Aaron. Aaron is quiet. He doesn't say thank you. So you have here a subtle rebuke of Moses, almost, if you read into it. A subtle rebuke. He's trying to contextualize it. He's trying to rationalize it. He's trying to philosophize it. Aaron is silent. Aaron doesn't, seems like he's not going for the, the philosophical approach. Donna, jump in. Yes, it just reminded me, I did actually have some perfect comfort. My father passed away when I was in my 20s and it was unexpected. 
and we were very close. And at the funeral parlor, a friend of my mother's, or uh, my parents, said to me, he loved you tremendously. Mm. Right. Not about, you know, in a better place, not about anything about the, it's beautiful, right. Yeah. It's, um, we are told in countless good books about being very careful to what we say when, uh, when someone's experienced loss. In fact, it says in Pirkei Avos, Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, it says do not comfort someone while their loved one, deceased loved one, is still in front of them. In other words, there's even a time and a place even for the same words. But if it's too soon, it's inappropriate. So what you say and when you say it is critically important. And again, we see this micro drama happening over here where Moses starts spinning. Listen, Moshe Kibo Torah Messinai. Moses is all about Torah, it's all about wisdom, right? See, he's philosophizing, explaining why it happened, explaining that Hashem, God took, you know, the most precious ones. On this day of preciousness, God took the precious ones. Okay. By Yudam Aaron, Aaron's silent. Aaron's silent. He doesn't say thank you. He doesn't say no. He doesn't, he doesn't say anything because he's mourning. You know what some people say? Um, well, at least they're not suffering. At least they're not suffering, right. The question, and sometimes somebody wants to hear that. Sometimes somebody doesn't want to hear that. You have to be very careful. If you, not you, if one wants to trot out that phrase, at least they're not suffering, you got to be very, very careful. You got you to know, let the other, let, let the one in mourning guide that, guide that little, little tidbit, little anecdote. Because otherwise, you're telling them, don't worry, so don't, don't cry so much. Right? Don't cry so much. It's better. You're telling them it's better? Again, if they tell you that, it's one thing. But we can't tell someone who experienced loss how to feel, when to feel, what to feel, how to frame it, how to reframe it. That is not, that is not the role of, of mourning. In fact, as I said before, what we tell a person in mourning is, may Hashem come for you. And you know what we say? May Hashem come for you among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. And what does that mean? Why are we bring up Zion and Jerusalem? Because the ultimate comfort of Zion and Jerusalem is the rebuilding of Yerushalayim and the rebuilding of the temple with the coming of Mashiach. And the message is really the only true comfort can come from Hashem when He brings back your loved one with Mashiach, with the resurrection of the dead. That's the only true comfort. Nothing I can say will bring them back. Nothing that you can say will bring them back. The ultimate comfort is, what does a person want? They want to be reunited with their loved one. May Hashem do that. With the return of Zion and uh, that's exactly what we pray for. We pray for it seven times every, day, every three times a day. Seven times in the Amidah, we ask for Mashiach. It's the, the most frequently asked for, you know, FAQs, frequently asked questions, frequently asked requests, or frequent asks in prayer, Mashiach. It's pretty much what we, what we ask for. All right, back inside. So this is, oh, and, and one more thing. The other lesson here, and I'll share my screen, but the other lesson here is Vayidam Aaron, Aaron was silent. In the face of tragedy, I'm not saying anything new, I just maybe reframe it in a, in a tighter way. In the face of tragedy, the only honest response is silence. It doesn't mean not to do anything, but there's nothing to say. What are you going to say in the face of tragedy? 
You're going to say something to make some, something feel better. I mean, action, of course, if there's tragedy, right, the next thing is let's remove the bodies, let's take care of what has to be done. You've got you to act. Um, but there's really what to say. Okay. Um, I went to a shiva recently. Um, the son of a rabbi in, in the community passed away. And we were just sitting there and nobody was saying anything. And it was yeah. awkward. Yeah. Just like staring at each other. We're just sitting there. Right. But that's part of it. Part of it is if, if the mourners don't want to say anything, then it's just being there with them as uncomfortable. See that, and you're getting to the heart of the matter. The reason why we sometimes say things that in retrospect may not be the most helpful is because we feel uncomfortable. So we have to break the ice. But why should it be about us? You know, it's not, it, it, it's one thing is we're not here for ourselves. When visiting a shiva house, right, when comforting a mourner, when, when being there for someone who lost a loved one, it's not about us. That's, that's really the, the core of this, of this idea. Now, verse 5, it says, um, the, two, the two cousins, whose names were Mishal and Al-Tzafan, they approached and carried them, not of a view, with their tunics to the outside of the camp. So Rashi says something interesting. With the tunics of the dead ones, the tunics of not of a view, not Mishal and Al-Tzafan. For the latter were Levites and did not wear the tunics of the Kohanim. Right? They were Leviim. They were not Kohanim. The only Kohanim were five. Aaron and his four sons, and two of them were now deceased. This teaches us, Rashi says, that their garments had not been burnt, but only their souls. Their souls were singed or left their bodies. Two, listen to this, two thread-like sparks of fire entered their nostrils, thereby, well, here's a parenthesis here, thereby destroying their souls along with their internal organs, ugh, but leaving their external body structures intact. Okay, I feel like that bit of, a, of gory bracket uh, detail is not... I mean, that's clearly not Rashi. That's a commentary on Rashi. But what Rashi says directly is that two thread-like sparks of fire entered their nostrils, and that, that was where, that's how they passed away, which is obviously highly significant because we know that the soul, Adam's soul, entered through the nostrils, and their souls exited through their nostrils. Okay. Um, Yeah, so Moses tells them, Aaron and his sons, do not mourn. You cannot mourn right now. It's, it's a special occasion, so you can't mourn, but everyone else will mourn. Rashi says, from here we learn, that when Torah scholars are afflicted, all of Israel are obligated to mourn for them. When Torah scholars are afflicted, all of Israel are... So it wasn't just in that case, but everyone should mourn when a Torah scholar is afflicted. By the way, there was recently... A, yeah, um, I think the funeral was yesterday, the day before. Bechaim Kanievsky was Sunday. So a few days ago, a, a, a giant in the Jewish world passed away in Israel. He's an incredible scholar, halachist, uh, master of Jewish law and spirituality, who passed away at the age of 95. And the funeral was in Israel. He lived in Israel. Funeral was in Israel. I think 750,000 people went. Three quarters of a million people at the funeral. This was like one of the largest public events in Israeli history. And um, indeed, it's, uh, it, it aligns with what we just said, that when a Torah scholar passes away, the entire community mourns. Which part of Israel was that? Do you know? He lived in B'nai Brak, right? He lived in B'nai Brak. Yeah. 
Where was the funeral? In B'nai Brak? Yeah. Okay, back inside. Oh, here we go. Let me toggle Rashi off, and then we're going to do the new, the new text. Okay. Verse number 8. Pasaches. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying... Now, again, we already had this in Rashi, but this is highly significant. God spoke to Aaron. That never happens. God sp- speaks to Moses and tells Moses to tell Aaron. God always speaks to Moses. And then he tells Moses who to tell the people, tell Aaron, tell this, tell that, tell the other, right? God directly speaks to Aaron. That's why the commentators say, one second, it must be that this is highly relevant to Aaron as a Kohen. And what is the message? Verse 9, do not drink wine. That will lead to intoxication. Neither you nor your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting so that you shall not die. Right? You're with me on this. Right? Don't drink wine of intoxication and then go into the Omo, to the Mishkan, so that you shall not die, which implies that if you do that, then that is a capital offense. This is not, and again, not punishable by a court of law, but punishable from heaven. This is an eternal statute for your generations. Chukat olam ladarotechem means it's an everlasting commandment. It's not just today or for 40 years. Well, they didn't know 40 years, but not only when the Mishkan was standing. Later on in the Beit HaMidrash, the temple as well. A Kohen is not allowed to drink wine of intoxication and then go into the, and then go into the holy space. To distinct, this is an eternal statute of generations, verse 10, to distinguish between holy and profane and between unclean and clean. In other words, this is a delineation between what's holy and what's not holy, between what's not clean and what is clean. And to instruct the children of Israel regarding the statutes, regarding all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses, this is also your charge as Kohanim, as priests, is number one, to not go into the, to the Mishkan intoxicated. Number two, to distinguish between holy and unholy. And number three, to teach the people regarding all these statutes. In other words, that they should know also the laws of purity and impurity, etc., as Rashi will um, explain. So let's, let's do Rashi on these last few verses. Rashi says, wine, the, the prohibition is against wine that will lead to intoxication, Rashi says, but wine in a manner that leads to intoxication, I'm sorry, this does not mean other strong drink, but rather specifically wine in a manner that leads to intoxication, namely sufficient wine to cause intoxication, undiluted and drunk without interruption, which means that my Moscato de Asti, my 5% alcohol of choice, Sprite with a little bit of alcohol, probably can be consumed by a Kohen. I doubt that that's going to get you too far too fast because <laughs> it's, uh, it's fairly moderate. The point here is, the Torah doesn't say, and I probably should have caveated this before and explained this before when I said that a Kohen can't drink wine, wine that will lead to intoxication, heavier spirits that will lead. And it could be by person. You know, everyone has their own tolerance of alcohol. Some people, you know, they drink one beer. See you later, alligator, right? They're done. Some people, it takes uh, Zexa Neinziker. You know what Zexa Neinziker is? 96, also, yeah. same thing like about food, like you always tell us, you know, you're eat, not eating food for the gluttony, but... Correct, the, correct. You want the divine nature with, or in, help us inspire us divinely, so same thing with Correct. The right? right, at a Fabrengen, we have a different conversation, right? But now going into the Mishkan, we got this. Um, one other point of note... Regarding intoxication, what was I going to say? 
Anyway. It's been said that the Lechaim at a Fabrengen, you know, Fabrengen is, right? A gathering, inspiration. Lechaim at a Fabrengen is like the, you know, when you put on alcohol before a shot, right? They rub the area with alcohol to, um, to disinfect the area, right? So the, pre infection. the previous rabbi, I think, got the, a vaccine or some sort of shot. I don't remember when, either it was back in Russia or here in the United States. I don't, I don't, I don't know the year. I don't remember the, which, which shot he got. But he was getting a shot, a vaccine or something. And he said, the doctor started cleaning the area. He said, you know, I'm, I'm clean. I took a shower or whatever. I, I'm, I'm clean. He says, no, 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 no. When you, put, when you put something sharp, you put a needle into the body, it's got to be the clean, the, the, the standard of clean has to be like, so the Hasidic understanding of this is, at a Fabreng, and you'll hear this, like before you tell something sharp to someone else, before you put a needle, I'm saying before you rebuke, you have to make sure that it's clean. It's perfectly disin uh, dis, um, disinfect, uh, disinfected. It has to be, you have to make sure that the words that you're going to say are coming out of, from a place of love and purity and concern and care and not anger or judgment or hostility. You with me what I'm saying? There's a way to critique that's helpful and a way to critique that's harmful. If you want to put a needle into someone else, oh, because you want to inject them with something healthy? Okay, stop. Before you do that, disinfect the area. Make sure that it's 100% free of any bacteria or anything negative. Because oh, so the person should be... Yeah, that's what I mean. The person who's saying it has to be 100%, no judgment, no anger, no, no, no jealousy, nothing. And the person who's receiving it also has to be ready for it. You can't just talk about, you know, parenting or discipline. If only, if only we were all so, uh, so on point, right? To, at the right moment, with the right words, with the right disinfectant. All right, anyway, back inside. Um, and we're going we're gonna to conclude in, in a, just a, a moment or two. We'll do another Rashi, and then we're going to, a, a, a Rashi or two, and then we're going to close this out. Um, Rashi clarifies, we're not going to read the whole thing inside, that not only is a Kohen forbidden to walk into the building, to the Mishkan building, intoxicated, but even to approach the outer altar and to serve at the outer altar that's under the sky, not inside the building. Remember, there are two altars. One inside for the katars, for the incense, and one outside for the animals. Even the outer animal altar also he could not approach. And there's a, there's a way that he learns that in this Rashi, but it's very long. We're not going to read it inside. Um, to distinguish, Rashi says, Thus you've learned, if one performed a particular service after having drunk wine, it is invalid. What if a Kohen did, did, drank and then did a service? It's invalidated. And to instruct, this teaches us, Rashi says, that an intoxicated person is prohibited to render halachic decisions. Not only a Kohen can't serve, a Rav, a rabbi, is also unable to serve, um, is unable to render a halachic decision, this is in Jewish law, while intoxicated, while impaired with alcohol. One might think that he incurs a death penalty, like the intoxicated Kohen. The scripture therefore says, neither you nor your sons with you so that you shall not die. This implies that only intoxicated Kohan and priests in their service incur the death penalty, whereas intoxicated sages who render a lot of decisions do not incur the death penalty, although they should not do so. All right, that takes us to the end of today's reading. So obviously, 
obviously goes without saying, it's a very sad and dark and um, painful, you know, there's a lot of a painful, uh, the, the, the narrative today is very painful. It starts off with a, euphor, a euphoric high, and then it, it, it very quickly goes down. You can imagine the mood swing amongst the people. Here, they were finally, they finally felt free of the sin of the golden calf. They finally felt forgiven, and then tragedy strikes. Talk about a mixed message. The day of celebration to have this tragedy. And I think one of the messages for us in, in, is that real life is messy and real life is complicated. And while we don't have an answer to the question of why, do, why does tragedy happen and we shouldn't seek to explain it, to understand it, and to, to, you know, to shoo away, and, oh, I understand why it happened, and this is like Moses did there, oh, this is why, because God wanted the best. We shouldn't seek to do that. Nonetheless, we have to re recognize that every high is usually matched with a low, and then we also know that every low is matched with a high, like we've spoken about many times. We can't get too high with the highs, can't get too low with the lows. We have to have a balance to recognize that every sunny day is followed by a cloudy day, but conversely, every cloudy day is also followed by a sunny day. There are ups and there are downs. Life is like a wheel, like a Ferris wheel. Sometimes it's at the, you're at the top, sometimes you're finding yourself at the bottom. The main thing is to stay strong and to, um, to have faith that the, good, the better times are around the corner. All right, thank you for joining me today for DPP a.k.a. Daily Power Parsha. Um, questions, comments? It's great. Rabbi. Pleasure. Of course, it's great to have our guest, Ray, and her, and her, and her granddaughter. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, what she can say? She's on camera. I mean, like, seriously, at this point, like, <laughs> she's like, I can't believe I just wasted my time here. But anyway, no, joking. Thank you very much. Sorry, I, sh sorry, I should take a compliment a little bit better. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And it was really nice to meet you. And we had a nice schmooze before the class. And Thank Ray, you, you should continue. Of course. Ray, you should continue to have lots of nachas. And, and I know you do. Yes. And you should know that she does. <laughs> no pressure. It's not about guilt. But you should continue to give her nachas and give your parents nachas. And give yourself nachas. Give Hashem nachas. And continue to do amazing things. All right. Um, I hope to see you all a little bit later tonight. We have at 8 o'clock, you be the judge. Today we talk about burden tonight. The, the cases are about burden, burdens of proof, or burden of proof. What happens if two people are disputing ownership and no one can bring proof? What do you do? How do you deal with a case of disputed ownership? Two people are fighting over a necklace. Donna says it's hers. I say it's mine, huh? Finders keepers. Uh, it's not finders. It's now we don't know who the finder is. They're both saying that, that it's theirs. All right. So this is a complicated case. Tonight we deal with it. You be the judge. You'll have an opportunity to weigh in on matters of law and render your decision. This is a live reality show class. You're going to love it. If you, if, you, if you haven't yet jumped into these classes, let me know that you want to join. I'll send you the link. We'll get you in for a class. Check it out. All right. We'll see you all. Have a wonderful day. Hope to see you tomorrow at noon. Ray. Who surprises tomorrow? I don't know, but you'll you'll surprise us then. <laughs> right, exactly. We'll see you guys. Take care. Thank you very much, Randy. Bye. Wow, you're amazing.